From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy on the campus of Penn State University, I'm Michael Berkman. I'm Chris Beam. I'm Candace Watt-Smith. I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to Democracy Works. Well, we have reached the end of another school year and the end of another season here on Democracy Works. We are going to be taking a hiatus for the next couple of months until probably late August or so. But it's going to be a big summer just because we're not on doesn't mean that the wheels of democracy are going to stop turning by any means. It's you know, they don't they don't hold it up for us. How dare they? But one of the things I think that we're watching uh, or will be watching this summer are decisions coming out from the Supreme Court. There are several big cases I think that are expected to be decided this current term. So I thought maybe we could start this discussion there. Uh, what are you all going to be watching for and to maybe? take a, a step back even from that, how are you thinking about the court's role in our democracy in this, this current moment? Well, a few things stand out to me. And one is that the Supreme Court is a reminder that elections have consequences. And some of those consequences have very long lives and long tails. We'll remember that three out of six conservative justices were nominated by one person who was impeached twice and never won a popular vote. You know, the other thing that stands out to me about the Supreme Court is also that the shift reveals how long a movement might need to take to get what they want. And in this case, we see that there is a conservative movement to make courts up and down the kind of, you know, across the federal system to move to the right. And with just sheer will and determination and leveraging democratic institutions in a particular way that what we're going to see over the next, over the summer, and certainly over the next several years, maybe decades, is going to come out of that very, very long movement. I think in terms of the the outcome that you just described, Candace, I think it's the product of very good and successful organizing and you, finding the points of, of leverage within the political dynamic and then developing a concerted strategy to put influence there. And, and that goes back to playing the long game and using resources in philanthropy, in higher education, and creating new resources for it. And so all I would want to say is that's good politics. It's not, I mean, I don't like the outcome, but I think in terms of just how democratic politics works and, and ought to work, the Republicans and the conservatives have done a really, really good job. Well, in the Federalist Society. Right. I mean, that's one of those institutions. Almost every one of the Republican judges, certainly all three appointed during uh, during uh, Trump's term, were essentially chosen uh, by the Federalist Society with this long-term goal of overturning abortion rights, of reinforcing gun rights. And I think we're also going to see, as we already have with many of the public health decisions around COVID, uh, with curbing back uh, regulatory powers as well, and yeah, as Kansas noted at the beginning, you know, it's a long, it was a, a concerted effort to do it over time, 
and to do what they needed to do. I, the courts were designed to be anti-majoritarian institutions. and I, Right, I to, they, to defend rights against the majority. Yeah, and I think, I think a lot of the conservative movement recognized that a lot of the positions that they were really pushing were not favored by the public. And so the best way to go about them was going to be through securing this anti-majoritarian institution. And, and Americans are now seeing the consequences of that. So you've got, you know, Clarence Thomas was appointed uh, back, what, with Ronald Reagan? And we can well anticipate uh, that Coney Barrett, who's quite young, will be around for another 40 years. And Kavanaugh, too, could well be around for 40 years. He can each be around for another 50 years. And so, <laughs> you know, whatever, whatever the public opinion might be right now, it doesn't really matter because these people were chosen from a different time period and are, are likely not going to be all that concerned with that. And although studies of the Supreme Court in the past have often found that they do take into account public opinion to a certain extent, uh, we'll see. That's a really good point, and I think you're right. I mean, you know, there was so much press about the leaking around the abortion decision about the Mississippi law, but the other issue that's coming up before that's going to be decided is this case in New York around the New York law says you have to have a reason to have a concealed carry of a, of a firearm. And the case is arguing that that's unconstitutional, it goes against the Second Amendment. And I got to believe that what's going on in Ovalde and uh, Buffalo has to be a topic of conversation. It, is this really the time when you want to eliminate every restriction on concealed carry in the United States of America? And it, we'll see. We'll see. But it is, um, it is going to be impactful, whatever, whatever it is. Yeah, well, it'll be in it'll incite. <laughs> yes. You know, so, I mean, to me, my sense of the recent school shooting, oh, the recent mass shootings, actually, because Buffalo was just two or three weeks ago. Right. Is that it won't make any difference at all for the courts in their deliberations. Deliberations, which are probably done by now. I don't know. I'm certain they are. But, I'm certain that the decision is already mostly written. Yeah, but, but it will have, I think it will make a difference in how it is received and uh, how, how the public takes it. But, you know, whether or not, what, I, I, we're, we're seeing decision after decision after decision. I mean, we really can't downplay the significance of these court decisions over the last couple of years and what's coming up. Potentially the Mississippi decision on abortion, which, you know, my assumption is that they're not gonna change that opinion very much. They'll soften it, but that's the opinion. Put them in a very difficult position if they did. Uh, I think we're going to see this few, further loosening of gun rights, and actually, probably to a degree that we haven't really even thought about yet. And it goes under the radar, but you know, the decisions that have come down about COVID and the government's power in COVID is are, are all really designed to undercut the regulatory power of the federal bureaucracy. I think they're probably going to go after the Commerce Clause in the next couple of years as well as a way of reducing federal government power. I mean, this is this was a dream to get a six to three majority on the mm -hmm. courts, and I'll be very surprised if they don't take full advantage of it, especially as public opinion potentially moves against them from demographic changes and lots of other things going on. I, you know, find it funny and not funny, haha, but just something to think about that we're having such this kind of long conversation about the role of the Supreme Court when 
ideally and ostensibly it's supposed to be the least powerful of the three branches of the federal government. Um, And so, you know, the fact that we are talking about this and all of the power that they have and have amassed over the years is in part because, you know, there are these other mechanisms that are supposed to keep us within the guardrails, checks and balances and separation of power. But those don't appear to be working either because Congress Article One or whatever institution um, is ceding that power by letting its own rules that are not written in the Constitution get in its way of turning elections and uh, what people actually want into into policy, right? To just kind of they're like kicking the can and being loosey-goosey, the filibuster, for example, is not in the Constitution. And filibuster rules have changed before. And they can change again if there was, you know, a will to actually turn public opinion and preferences into reality. Yeah. Were courts really intended to be the least dangerous branch or was the observation that they were the least dangerous branch? And because they were seen as not having the power of the sword and not having the power of the purse, right, as the legislative branch does and as the executive branch does, they were they were puffed up in certain ways, right? They were given lifetime tenure, not really thinking that they were going to live to be 80 some odd years old. <laughs> Or they're going to get nominated when they're in their 40s either. We tend to reify the framers quite a bit and and appeal back to their wisdom. But their their failure to foresee the development of political parties is really consequential because they saw the three branches as in competition with one another. Right. Uh, as, as Chris was just talking about. Right. I, I, I think the phrase from Federalist 51 is ambition counteracts ambition, mm-hmm. something along those along those lines. But partisanship actually draws these institutions together in a way that mm-hmm. wasn't foreseen. So the court is because of these, you know, the Republicans have been in a position and have been and because of what they were able to pull off in the Senate, have been able to dominate the appointments to the court. And so this kind of conservative Republican ideology is running across institutions. It's not one institution in competition with another, right. which is how they foresee it. And, and it was quite naive of them uh, not to anticipate. In fact, many of them were involved. <laughs> well, and almost immediately, right? As soon as, as, soon as Washington yeah. left the scene, boom, there were parties. But and, then, and, and it's rarely been otherwise in American history. Well, and in the history of any democracy, right. it's rarely been otherwise. I mean, political parties are pretty much found in any democracy. Now, of course, they probably didn't realize this in the 1700s, yet it, 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 it is... It, it, it does have to stand as, I think, a real problem in using the framers constantly as a way of justifying everything that's going on. They really missed something here. Yeah, I, I, I mean, we've said that before. I don't think any of us disagree with that. Well, we're on but, the, act, but, but the implications are extreme right now. Yeah. I also think that, you know, another place that we're kind of seeing this extreme partisanship and polarization encroach is at the very local level, which is, you know, often where we tend to expect kind of more homogeneity around values and demographics. But I think we're seeing this kind of erode even like in schools. And I think kind of some of the 
the the debates and the chaos at mm-hmm. in school boards and the diminishment of American public education is also going to be a consequence here. And maybe I'm being a little conspiratorial here, but I think that if we look at the strategies that we've seen that, for example, taking on judicial seats, like the judiciary, especially at the state level, have been like cheap seats. I mean, it's easy to campaign. It's easy. You know, they're they're historically cheap seats. And I think that the same could be said about school boards. And so here, I think we really need to kind of keep our finger on the pulse around the dynamics around what's going on around book bans and, you know, academic freedom and civics education and don't say gay and what we're what teachers are allowed and not allowed to do and vouchers are all um, are all just kind of in the same realm of diminishing public education's role in in producing well-informed citizens that can make educated decisions at the ballot box or as political representatives or as bureaucrats or as teachers, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. This, this, this reminds me of our conversation with Jake Grimbach from earlier yeah. this year about how national politics and this, the, the, the polarization you were describing, Chris, that started at the national level as really sort of steep, steep down into state politics and also in, into local politics. And I think we also heard this from Liliana Mason and, and some of her work bears this out that these sort of incompatible visions of fully realized multiracial, multiethnic democracy and whatever vision is not that, right? That's you know, what, what <laughs> we're, we're talking is, yeah. about here. And it also, I think, brings to mind this, and this maybe brings us back to the, to the, the courts a little bit, but uh, this notion of, of rights. You know, we've talked before on the show about the right to public education. And we've, if you sort of put that on, on one side and something like the, the Second Amendment on the other, or it just seems like there's also this sorting going on in the courts of which rights are more important or the, the creation of, of a hierarchy or, you know, which ones matter more. And there's there's been a, a lot of talk about, well, does the the opinion on Roe mean that we're, we're going to come for marriage equality or that other things like that might be next? And I'm wondering how you all are, are thinking about this issue of of rights and whether we might very well see some of these other things that are, are not explicitly granted rights in, in the Constitution kind of be perhaps up for question in ways that they haven't been before. Yeah, the, the writing out of the Ninth Amendment from the Bill of Rights. I mean, that's what struck me about Alito's decision almost more than anything. I mean, Let's say more about what that means. Well, the Ninth Amendment is the one that right. says that people have rights that are not necessarily right. enumerated in the Bill of Rights. I mean, it's quite explicit about that. And, and, people were, and, and the founders uh, were worried, right, that, well, what about other rights that we haven't articulated? Right. That's what the Ninth Amendment is for. Right. And the Griswold decision established a right to privacy, a right that's not enumerated in the Bill of Rights, but is rather considered an unenumerated right, draws heavily on the Ninth Amendment. Mm-hmm in arguing that you can look at what they call the penumbras of other rights to discern uh, the right to privacy. I always thought it was a fascinating decision the way they went about this. But what, what was really kind of striking about Alito's decision, from what I saw in maybe not the most careful reading, but others I think talked about it too, is he never mentions it. 
Right. But he really goes after this notion of unenumerated rights. And it's mm -hmm. because he goes after unenumerated rights that people are rightfully concerned about mm -hmm. gay marriage rights and, uh, oh, host of others, <laughs> contraceptive yeah. rights. I mean, a lot of things that are that that the right to privacy under it is underneath that. They're all built upon the right to privacy. And, and I mean, they want to argue, but I didn't believe it for a second that, well, abortion is different uh, because it also involves the rights of the fetus. But they are, that that's just a convenience I think they're using to try to claim that this doesn't apply to anything else. I mean, the, well, the uh, of that decision is one that will undercut all unenumerated rights. And that is not what was intended by the framers. They were quite explicit in the Ninth Amendment that you could find rights that aren't listed. And I don't mm -hmm. know what happened to that. And um, again, as you said, Michael, the whole point of the Bill of Rights is to say there are rights that every individual obtains that cannot be legislated away, period. And I mean, obviously, these, these rights are going to conflict, right? You can't solve it just by saying there's a right here, but it's clear that for for Alito in this decision, the, the argument that um, there is a right that's in the penumbra of the Constitution is simply out of bounds. It's n it's it does not hold any um, any credence with the court. Part of this conversation, especially on the um, congressional side, was teed up during Katanji Brown Jackson's confirmation mm -hmm. hearing. Right. They were kind of asking her, like, well, you know, what do you think about these rights that are not, you know, enumerated in the Constitution? And I, I think that also just goes back to what we were talking about earlier about how partisanship through each of the branches of government can serve to collide in a way that was unintended. So Congress, for example, could make some series of laws and could go through all of the trouble to make new amendments. These are possibilities, but they are ones that are just not going to happen, right. not, not anytime soon. But I, I think it's important that we also consider the fact that the Supreme Court has way more power than it ought to, and that other branches of government are ceding its own power to it by not doing anything. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, there's... there's <laughs> because of the filibuster and because th there's a, um, a razor slim, slim majority in the House, Congress is, is very hamstrung in terms of doing anything here. And the Supreme Court does have that and they can get things done. Mm -hmm. And so that's where that's where political action naturally goes. Yeah. Paint, paint me just a little bit skeptical that everything is just because of Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema refusing to do the filibuster. I, I think sometimes they're carrying water for others. And this gets a lot of Democrats who may feel, you know, there are a lot of fairly, there are a lot of Democrats in the Senate that are, 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 are not particularly progressive and who might feel very uncomfortable, especially with some of these sort of institutional changes. But one thing that Joe Manchin does for them is get them off the hook of ever having to do that's I, I think that's, I mean, sure. certainly true. I mean, that's just, At least how, in like, some cases. That's just yeah. how legislative politics work. But 
Congress has so many procedural absurdities that I think that we let the status quo constrain our imagination of what's possible. Mm -hmm. These people are smart people and they are very experienced as we discussed with Kevin Munger last, you know, last week that there has to be some other way. I just have a hard time believing that it has to be like this, that these people cannot use their imaginations and their experience and their know-how to produce good policy, especially when those policies mimic or are speak directly to public preferences, especially when it's about rights expanding matters, not necessarily ones that um, run roughshod over minority. Speaking of, of Congress, the other big thing or another big thing that will be happening this summer, in fact, starting on June 9th, just a couple days uh, after this episode will come out, the January 6th committee will start its public hearings. I have seen op-eds and things comparing this to, you know, this is the the political equivalent of Top Gun, right? This is going to be like the summer's big blockbuster. Maybe that's, maybe that's I was wondering where that analogy was going. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, uh, you know, I'm also reminded of, you know, I think one of the very first episodes of the show that we did, we had Doug Kreiner on, who was our colleague at Penn State at the time, and he studies these hearings and the the power that they have both legislatively Mm -hmm. and in in the public eye. And I just I I wonder if based on what we have seen from things like the Ketanji Brown Jackson confirmation hearings or other public displays of, of political procedure, whether any ground will be gained, any minds will be changed, what outcomes we can realistically hope for or look for out of these hearings? It's also a matter of setting the record straight and and getting the facts out there. And I, I guess it was Jonathan Rausch, right, who talked to us about how different kinds of the uh, something of knowledge, help me out, Jenna. The Constitution of, of knowledge. Constitution of knowledge and uh, talking about how different institutions are designed to gather facts and knowledge differently, right? The journalists have their tools and universities have their tools and their procedures and their institutions that are designed to uh, learn what's true, to learn new knowledge. Courts have their ways of doing that, and Congress has its way of doing that. And and we're going to need all of these in order to really get to the bottom and learn what it is that happened on January 6th. And the, you know, and the uh, Congress can play a role in that in, in helping to establish a record uh, that's going to be there and that's going to be there in the public for the public uh, in years going forward. That's going to be there for the Justice Department to perhaps pick up on or not to pick up on. But uh, you know, we don't we don't really know. There's some signs and maybe they are picking up on some of it. But anyway, I just I, I do think that the public aspect of it is very important, as Jenna framed it. That's why they're doing public hearings <laughs> in, in part. But it's also about building a record. Boy, I really hope that this is, is not just a document for history. I really I mean, you know, you don't have to change a lot of minds in order to have a huge political impact. Yeah. And I well, it's going to weaken Trump. 
Yeah, and we can the the everyone who is supportive of this argument that you know we have to stop the steal that the election was stolen. I mean, there are, there is a huge cadre of Americans who will never change their mind about that. But if there if you can change it from forty percent to thirty five percent or you know something like that, that would have an impact. And and I just think it would be good for the nation if that happened. Yeah. There's going to be a there's a long term and a short term and a medium term. So the short short term, I think it's going to be very much I'll believe it when I see it. And by that, I just mean, you know, as you're saying is there are going to be some people who are going to aggressively reject the facts. Mm hmm. Then there's the long term, which is what Michael was talking about is like for fact gathering and knowledge gathering and having it so we can have a better understanding of our history and contextualizing all of the things that happened to us. I think so there's a challenger and there's 9-11, but another set of commissions that have occurred over the years are ones that are concerned with race and racial violence. And we don't seem to have learned from any of those. So, you know, It will be fascinating, I suppose, to see whether this is going to be one of the ones that we do learn from or that, you know, uh, some disproportionate amount of Americans reject off offhand or will quickly forget. I'm going to argue against myself. And and I and just to say that the one thing that those two impeachment hearings did. And the one thing that I hope this commission does is advocate for a standard of truth in politics, that there is a there are facts in the matter here. And it's important that those get communicated and that lies get challenged and called out as lies. Because if you if, if we don't do that, if there are no standards for what is legitimate political discourse, then you just can't sustain a democracy. And I think that you see this again and again and again. There is no evidence to support the notion that the election was stolen, and that doesn't matter. And it ought to matter. And if, you, if we are in a society in which power is the only adjudicator of the legitimacy or the truth of a claim, then ball game's over. Well, I guess one thing to look out for is to see if Democrats, especially in the Senate, try to leverage this for expanding voting rights and the For the People Act or the John Lewis Act. Yet the timidity there is really, really remarkable. Well, it depends. You know, there's a lot of timidity to go around. There's also the Justice Department timidity, and it seems to be much ever increasingly viable strategy of just running out the clock. Um, we don't have a lot of time left. And if there are no cases brought before January 20th, 2023, it's, I, I think it's going to be too late. As we bring things to a close here, I um, wanted to ask, we certainly have no shortage of books and things that we, we talk about and you know recommendations for people to read. But just wondering if any of you have anything you wanted to recommend to our listeners to check out, whether a, a book or another podcast or something you've been watching, um, something that they should check out this summer while we are on, on hiatus. Considering that we're all going to be watching the Top Gun of politics <laughs> CNN, I wanted to recommend something that has nothing to do with politics. And I recently read, listened to, 
slash I did the audible version of A Swim in the Pond in the Rain by George Saunders, which is essentially a masterclass on what makes a story work. And it was just a good reminder of how to delight in reading literature and what lessons we can take away from stories and from the writing itself. And it it, it uses uh, like ma- Russian short story classics to walk through. And I really enjoyed it uh, as just kind of a break from all of the timidity that um, <laughs> frustrates us all. I'm, I'm uh, taking, I don't know if it's a class or a book club or whatever, but it's uh, alumni from where I went to graduate school on this uh, American literature. And I got to say, I'm struck by how depressing the the history of of American literature classics is and how often I see these same issues of class and race and just come up again and again and again. I'm just re- just finished Grapes of Wrath. If you really want to be depressed, that'll do it. But the one book we read that I just absolutely loved was Death Comes for the Archbishop by uh, Willa Cather, who is from Nebraska, but it is just uh, filled with grace and humanity and the writing is unbelievable. So that would be my suggestion. Yeah. The the book I was thinking about is called A Ministry for the Future by uh, Kim Robinson. And it's a uh, piece of science fiction. I don't read a lot of science fiction, although this has gotten me into it a bit more. Uh, This book was recommended to me by uh, Michael Mann, the climate scientist, when, uh, when he was here. And it's a book that looks in a variety of ways, politically, economically, technologically, scientifically, ecologically, at a future world where climate change has really played itself out in some extremely tragic ways. The book starts with a massive heat wave in India that essentially kills everybody in a uh, certain geographic area, millions and millions of people. And then it, it just goes, and uh, the, the, the central player in the book is this Ministry for the Future, which is established out of some, I'm going to call it a loophole in the Paris Climate Accords that essentially allows this international ministry to be set up for responsibility to look out for the future and for future generations and for the future Earth. And so they have enormous power. Uh, around the world. And we see the establishment of different monetary systems that are based not on the use of carbon, but on not using carbon. Uh, We see these large-scale technological approaches to dealing with climate change. Uh, We see uh, terrorist activity related to climate change. I I just find it an absolutely fascinating book that did a couple of things for me. It it opened up my imagination about what a future world could look like in terms of climate change, both in terms of its impact and what it's going to do and how we might respond to it, recognizing that we're not going to be the same after all this climate, after all of these disasters occur. And so we have to think about how things might be approached very, very differently. So I think mine, in in some ways, ties all of these threads together, perhaps. It's Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel, um, which I I read for the first time a couple months ago. There's also a a series on HBO, I believe. But uh, I love the way that she uses story and character and description also has has a science fiction element. And I think to your point, Chris, also shows how 
all these themes just kind of keep keep coming <laughs> back around, whether in the real world or a future world or an imagined world. Uh, and I know she has a new book out as well called Sea of Tranquility. I've not read that one yet. I'm still in the queue for it at the library. But she's she's written several books. And then there is that um, Station Eleven series on HBO as well. Yeah, which is tremendous. It is. I agree. Do we perhaps have a different podcast series that people might want to listen to over the summer? It's called <laughs> When the People Decide. So the, the series name sort of has two connotations. One, what happens when people decide directly on these issues, which is one set of considerations. And the other is what happens when people decide to take a more active role in their politics. So I, I think of it in some ways as the the maybe the optimism that we've we sometimes struggle to find in other things um, certainly comes out uh, in in the people that I talk to here. So with that, I think we're going to bring this season of Democracy Works to a close. Thank you all uh, very much for listening for the entire team. Thanks again, and we will see you in the fall. Democracy Works is a collaboration between the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. Our editors are Mickey Klein, Chris Kugler, and Mark Stitzer. Editorial review by Emily Reddy. And additional production support from Andy Grant and Chris Allen. If you enjoyed what you heard today, leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. It will help new people find the show. Find more great podcasts about democracy and civic engagement in the Democracy Group Podcast Network at democracygroup.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.